I hope you can see me in this maze of scaffolding behind me. Did y'all see Jesus Christ Superstar last Sunday, by the way? The whole set was around scaffolding. That was so symbolic. I thought it was so powerful. If you haven't seen it, maybe you can. It was one of the best versions. Of course, I grew up with that as a young person in high school, but it was really wonderful production of that, uh, of that story. So today is known as Low Sunday. That is the first week after Easter, and if you look around, you can see why. Last week, we had 1,000 people in worship, counting both 8.30 and 11, and today, probably, the total will be around 300. Low Sunday is also known because it has the Doubting Thomas text. How many times have we heard it? Year after year, it's the story of Doubting Thomas. And to be uh, honest, I just didn't want to preach it again this year. And so I found another text that's not our lectionary text that really interested me, mainly because I've always had trouble with it. It comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 1, excuse me, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples, not counting Judas, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but doubted some. Now, I know your text reads, but some doubted, but that was the redactor who changed that. The original Greek actually reads, they worshipped him and doubted. So I'll hedge it. They worshipped him, but doubted some. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, I've always struggled with this passage really over two issues. Not the doubting part. For me, that brings comfort, and I'll return to that in a moment. My first struggle is with the authority issue. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus claims. And the reason I struggle with it is because that really is the antithesis of how Jesus presented himself during his ministry. At every turn, he turned away from power and authority, pointing it back toward God and away from himself. Remember the temptations in the wilderness, the three temptations, and the tempter always invited Jesus to claim more authority. Turn stones into bread, go to the top of the pinnacle, and everybody will worship you, or become the ruler over all the world all authority issues, and in every case, Jesus turned it down. In fact, when he was crucified, everybody kept saying, claim your authority, claim being the Son of God, claim your power, and in every case, he chose powerlessness. And so for Jesus in this text to be standing up and saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, forces me to ask the question, what has changed? 
And what has changed, of course, is his crucifixion and his resurrection. And it is presence now after that crucifixion resurrection represents the authority of God's unconditional love and power that death will not have the last word. So once again, he's pointing to God with this authority, but he's also claiming it for himself. We're Presbyterians. Being Presbyterians, we have this Scott thing, the Scottish thing in us, you know, that we get our neck up in the face of authority. We don't like authority figures. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, which is why I have a button on my desk that says question authority and a, and a paperweight that is a question mark. Being Presbyterians, we got hammered by the authorities. So maybe that's what brings us together is that we have this natural fear or aversion to authority over us. Yet here is Jesus calling it all authority. Yet even in this point, it is the least likely kind of authority we can imagine. I think I remember telling you the story of my friend Tom, who uh, I unfortunately lost the week before Easter over Holy Week, and I drove to Atlanta to help in his funeral. Tom was a man of such integrity that he refused to give in to the church authorities, the doctrine and, and, and rules of the church, so that when we stood up to say the Apostles' Creed, Tom would stand up, but he would say, I believe in God, but he wouldn't say anything else because he wasn't sure about that. He doubted the rest of it. His integrity was greater than his sense of the authority of the church to tell him what to say. It's so like us, whether we admit it or not. We question authority, and we should. Look around the world at those who claim too much authority and power, and we see the debris and the littered loss and hurt that they leave. In Jesus' day, it was the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Roman government that claimed that kind of authority, and who never seemed to have any doubt about their being right and about their power. We know where that led, to the cross. Yet the Jesus that is in this text is standing up and claiming it, all authority in heaven and earth, in a completely new way. A completely new way that is not based on power, but based on his unconditional love and service and forgiveness. My second issue with this text is the tone of the passage. It's written in the imperative, go make disciples of all nations. Anybody that hears that go make, you need to be careful about. Go make sounds like the colonial powers of Britain and the United States and Spain going all over the world and going and making of all the native countries exactly in the image of what they wanted, all in the name of evangelism. More hurt and harm has been done in the name of evangelism, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
than anything we can imagine because it's all been based on that go make. I don't like go make, yet Jesus is saying it to his disciples. Go make, and what he's saying is go make disciples of all nations. And again, I get itchy. Does that mean to go convert everybody into Christianity? I mean, isn't that what we, at our deepest, darkest place, are sometimes afraid of, uh, of the Muslims doing? I can't tell you how much false news has gone out over and over again about the Muslims who are trying to go make everybody into being uh, Muslim. It's fake news. Do the fact check stuff. Yet here we are, standing on this passage that's telling us to do the same thing as we interpret it. Go make! And the last thing I want, or anybody else wants, is in, at least in this church, I think, is for somebody to come knock on my door and say, I am here to make you something else. Jesus never worked that way. Jesus always said, now that I'm the authority, look at me and how I have lived my life. So go and make simply means go and be like I am. And in the making of it, the same way you were made to be disciples, I loved you, I cared for you, I served you, I gave everything I had for you. That's what it means not to convert someone, but to love them into acknowledgement. The imperative of it scares me. So taken together, authority and the great commandment to go and make or else, I get itchy. It's the or else stuff. Having lunch last week in a restaurant, uh, I was on retreat at the Marriott out uh, at a seminar and a family came to eat. They were on vacation and the 13-year-old daughter wanted to order something that the mother felt was unhealthy. Apparently she'd been eating it every day. And so they got into a power struggle, as 13-year-olds are prone to do with their mothers. And as I was listening to this, why, 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 why not, why not, why not? And the mother finally said what? Because I said so. That's kind of what it feels like about go make. You're going to do what I say. Even still, with my two issues... They don't outweigh my appreciation for this text that I have to say has been a recent conversion. To be honest enough, it is about the presence of doubt. I am asked over and over again if I believe in the power of the resurrection and in Easter. And I say over and over again, I have faith in the power of the resurrection and the power of God to bring new life out of death. I have faith in the meaning and power of Easter and what that means for all of us. I have faith that God will redeem and reconcile all of God's creation. But when it comes to belief, I get tangled. I have some doubts because, you see, belief is built on head stuff. It is a cognitive effort, but faith is a heart thing. Faith is like trust. Belief is about dogma. Faith is like hope. Belief is about doctrine. Faith is like reaching out, open-armed for the presence of 
Christ to be in our midst, but belief is about, you know, you're not the Christ I expected, or belief is about, you don't really fit all those things I'm supposed to go by. We, we get stuck in it, but faith, ah, oh, it's wide open. Paul said, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I would say that he changed his mind by Romans and say the greatest of these is hope. Because in Romans, what he's saying is we believe in the hope of God to redeem all creation. And if that's not an Easter resurrection text, I don't know. We have faith. They doubted. And if we're honest with ourselves, so do we. I don't know how much percentage, but we do. We doubt. But Jesus in this text doesn't even care about that. He just assumes it's, our, okay, I know that, no big deal. He didn't even care about it. Okay, so they doubted. The point is, so did Abraham, so did Moses and Sarah, so did David and Job, all the prophets. Every major person in the story of the Bible had some doubt. Think of the disciples as they followed Jesus along the way, all struggling with who he was and what he was supposed to do, thinking they knew him, but they didn't. Think about Peter in the boat. You remember that story in Mark? He's in the boat and there's a giant storm at sea and it's symbolic of the storm before God created the order out of chaos in Genesis. That giant to whom Peter's in the boat and there's this stormy sea in front of him and Jesus looks at Peter and Peter's so earnest and Jesus says, step out of the boat and come to me. And Peter steps out. And as soon as he did, he had doubt. And of course, he sank like a rock which is fitting because that was his name. And Jesus comes to him in the midst of the abyss and pulls him up by the scruff of the neck and put him, puts him back in the boat. Of course he had doubt. Who wouldn't? You step out into the ocean of something that you have absolutely no surety about. It's faith. It also has doubt. And Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age which is to say, wherever you are in your faith or your doubt, on whatever level you are in the abyss, either you're treading water or you're going deep down, Jesus is with us to the end of the age. It doesn't matter. He pulls us back up when we are ready, puts us back in the boat, and gives us a commandment, the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. All nations. This does not mean to convert them. This means that when Jesus said it, only Israel was the inside nation. Only the Jews had access to God in the way that Jesus wanted everyone to have access to. So what he's saying is, stop the division. Stop the national divisions. Stop the racial divisions. All people, not about nation or race, not about sexuality, not about age. It's all nations as an act of ultimate inclusion. That's what he's telling his disciples to do, to get up and go. And where is he telling them? On a mountaintop. Because what is about mountaintop but nothing more than a church? He's at the mountaintop in Galilee. They're all on this mountain of the church where they, struck, where they worship and where they have this sacred moment with God. It's the church, right? They're in worship. They worshiped him and some doubted. And they're up there and Jesus says, what are you doing here? The job is to get off the mountain, out of the church, back out into the world and make disciples of them, telling them, you, no matter what, 
are a child of God. No matter what you've done or no matter where you've come from, you are part of God's kingdom. That's what he means about making disciples. And to do it in just the same way that Jesus did it with compassion and love and forgiveness and inclusion. Friends, I'm charging us to follow the Great Commission and to go into the world because the time is right. One of you recently sent me a a blog from a millennial. His name is Sam Eaton. Sam says, I want to love the church. I want to send sky-riding airplanes up in the sky to proclaim how much I love the church. I want a police microphone and a speaker on top of my car and cruise around the streets screaming to everyone about this community of church believers. But I can't. Read the statistics, he says. Two out of ten Americans under 30 believe church attendance is unimportant or worthwhile. 59% of millennials have dropped out. 35% have anti-church issues. They think church does more harm than good. Despite the steep drop-off, churches continue business as usual. Instead, what about creating outlets for us to start listening to the younger people both inside the church and out? What about hiring younger people with the skill set and desire to connect to younger people? They are sick of learning and hearing about our values and our mission statements. Ouch. Our mission is clear, he says. Jesus said it. It's the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. I would say that's what it means to be a movement for reconciliation. But there I am again, doing exactly what he's saying don't do. Love God, love neighbor. Mission is clear. If we have to explain our mission to the church, it is overly religious and too complicated. We're not impressed with the hours you spend behind closed doors wrestling over this stuff. We are impressed with action and service. There are prophets these millennials. Helping the poor is a priority. Clock the number of hours each person in the church, the number of average hours they spend doing church-type activities, Bible studies, meetings, groups, social functions, book clubs, versus the number of hours spent serving the least of these. Stop blaming culture, he says. The world is going to pot faster than the state of Colorado, is what everyone hears from us. Quit the end times rhetoric. We know about the culture we are in better than you do. Instead, teach us how our lives should be different than the culture is trying to teach us. And do it not from the pulpit or from on high as the ones with the authority, but through mentoring us. Now, that's a novel idea. They need to be mentored 
Why won't you sit with us, he asked. We come to church and we may have red or purple hair. We may have some tats. We may not look like everybody else, but nobody ever sits with us. If that's what we get from coming to church, why should we keep coming? We want to feel valued. We want to talk about controversial issues. We need a place where those with experience and faith are willing to help us deal with the hard issues in life. We need to change the public perception of church. I mean, I sat at Hawker's and I looked over at Riverside Church and what I saw was a mountain fort, which is exactly what they see, this mountain of a fort, this giant building fortress. That's the public perception. We need to change it. And we need to be knocking on every single door, asking every person what we can do to make their lives better. Stop talking in abstract sound bites. Give me a plan. Adapt. Put every single bit of financial information on the front page of every single bulletin and website for we want to know where the money goes and how it's spent. We do not trust institutions that hide it. So here is Jesus on the mountaintop at Riverside Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, just like with those disciples, and we doubt, but that doesn't matter. What matters is whether we're willing to commit to the great commission that Jesus calls us to, to go into the world and be like Christ, to give those people out there what at their deepest souls they most are hungry for, an unconditional moment of love and acceptance in the name of God, to ask them how we can serve, to listen to them and their stories, not to make them do anything, but to invite them into a whole new way of life. Let me end with the words of another millennial whose blog I read lately. Think about it in terms of Jesus diving into the ocean. I can't say that diving headfirst into the ocean is a good idea for everyone. It's dangerous. It will mess with your understanding of the world. There's no going back. But if you do, know that God is already out there in the water calling you to him. O ye of little faith, he will surely say once you have started flailing your arms and calling for help, but take heart that God will also reach down his hand into the water and pull you up again when you are sinking in your doubt. For this is how we learn how to swim. This is what faith is all about. Pretty clear to me, I hope to you.